0: If you haven't already, please take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 13. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 13 verses 8 through 10 this morning as we continue on this uh, short two-part series on understanding both human and divine government. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can open the pew Bible in front of you, and I believe the page number is listed for you in the order of service. Romans chapter 13, verses eight through 10. This is God's word. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law." This is God's word. Message this morning is gonna come to you in three acts. Act one, instruction. Act two, an illustration and Act 3, an invitation. The instruction, the illustration, and an invitation. Now, to begin with, let's look at the instruction here from Romans chapter 13. I do believe that uh, verse 10 wraps up a section that began all the way back in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. You'll recall back there, Paul says that it's by the grace that is given to me that I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It is important for us to give consideration to all of what Paul has said in these first 11 chapters of doctrine. And how does that personally apply to us? What do we do as a result? How do, we, how do we live that out? And that's Paul's concern in the last section here of Romans from chapter 12 all the way through chapter 16. And, and as he begins this discussion here in verse three of chapter 12, he wraps it up I think in chapter 13, verse 10 with those words, "'Love does no wrong to a neighbor, "'therefore love is the fulfilling of the law.'" That's very important for us to understand what what this law is. What is he referring to? As the Reformers would say, this is really the third use of the law. The law of God is not something that was discarded when the new covenant was created. This is not a harsh line of demarcation between the Old Testament and the new, the old covenant and the new. Um, There are not these um, really clearly defined markers along the way where God carries on with us in an entirely different way, that law that was granted to the people of Israel back in the Old Testament is a law that clearly communicates God's moral imperatives, that every one of those stands today. And in fact, what Paul is concerned that you understand is that you can fulfill that law and fulfill that law completely in terms of what God desires by fulfilling one command, and that is to love. We're going to explain that in more detail in a little bit. But here you have to begin by understanding that the law that he is referring to is the law of God, broken down to us here in the Ten Commandments and a reference then to the summary of that by loving God and loving your neighbor. If we're going to understand what it means to fulfill that law, let's go back and understand where the law came from. Exodus chapter 20, now this is the time where Moses goes up onto the mountain and he receives from God the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments are simple enough. You've all probably memorized them. It begins with not having any other God but God. Now, it's important to realize there is no other God but God. Why would he say that to his own people? It's because there was a temptation for them to think that God was merely a category of being. You realize that when he says there is no other God but God, he means God cannot be compared to anything else or anyone else. There is no other true God, and so he says to his people, you are to understand that I am unique in my character, that I am other, that I am independent, I am autonomous, I operate freely, that I, that I have chosen to disclose myself to you, and you should never forget that. The second commandment was not to take anything and try to make it a visible representation of that invisible God. God. Oh, of course it's true that they weren't supposed to follow idols from the nations but that was less of a concern than making an idol out of God himself. I mean this is exactly what Aaron does later on remember when the people are complaining and so he goes and he creates a golden calf. Well that golden calf wasn't the calf of some foreign god that golden calf was meant to be the calf that represents the God they were following. And they're judged for that. He says you don't make a graven image of me. You don't make any idols. Furthermore, you are to understand that there is a very important exercise that each one of you has the privilege of involving yourself in, and that is speaking the very name of God. And therefore, you don't take that opportunity lightly, you don't speak of Him flippantly, you don't speak of Him, sing of Him, or anything else without really considering who you're talking about. You don't take oaths by conjuring up his name. You, you don't lower him down into the everyday world that you would cause him to inhabit. No, you hold his name high, his glory high, his reputation high. You honor and extol and worship him. And one of the ways you would do that is you would keep a Sabbath day, this one day set apart, and that was the fourth commandment, now that it is a day of rest. It is a day to, to obey the withholding of labor that he commanded all of his followers, Beyond that, you're to honor your father and mother. Now, you have to remember that honoring your father and mother is a perpetual command. Obeying your father and mother, that happens when you're under their control and under their roof. But afterwards, you still have to honor them, and you honor them the way that God tells you to honor them. Fortunately, it doesn't say, make sure that your father and mother always feel honored, because sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes you can't honor them the way that uh, they want you to honor them but you do your best before the Lord to do that. Now, furthermore, you're not allowed to kill or to commit adultery or to steal. Um, These are obviously commands that should not have to be explained, but in order to be clear, the law lays that out. These are behaviors that are completely opposite to God Himself. Commandment number nine was that you're not supposed to bear false witness. Now, I know that we've been taught along the way that that means you're not supposed to lie, now, now, hear me clearly, you're not supposed to lie, but that's not what the ninth commandment says. The ninth commandment said that you are not to partner up with somebody who is bearing false witness against somebody else and say you saw something you didn't say or that you heard something you didn't hear or witness something you didn't witness. You are not allowed to partner up with somebody to be that second witness which could result in those days with the accused person being killed. You're not to be party to that kind of slander and gossip. And then finally, you're not to covet. You're not to covet a man's wife, or not to covet a man's house, not to covet his property. You're not supposed to be in a in a state of discontentment over what other people have. And I know it's tempting for some people to say, Well, that was the Old Testament, and in the New Testament everything changed that we're in a new dispensation now, and that all of that doesn't count anymore. But yet what you see is that when Jesus teaches these very same laws, he brings them all back again, not only externally saying that you have to obey them from the outside, but it actually goes deep into the heart. You have no other God, but God himself. You're not to have any idol—not just a little statue that you might pray to, but anything that displaces your affection for God, causes you to want that thing instead of God. You realize that um, idols can be almost anything today. In, in fact, um, you know we are our idol factories in our heart. We create idols out of everything. It's very easy for us because we can create something that is so important to us that when God takes it away, we curse Him. We place upon idols worship that they cannot support. In fact, there are some people who make idols even out of their children, what they want their children to be, this this child idolatry where they place so many expectations on that child. They, They want the child to live a certain way and become a certain thing and achieve a certain status and honestly, the child is crushed under the weight of the expectations of these parents, crushed because they can't bear up under the weight of the worship that you're putting on them instead of on God. Only God can bear the freight of worship. So not only do we have Him alone as our God and there's no other idols, we don't take His name in vain. We don't speak flippantly of God. We certainly don't curse using His name, but let me challenge us too, let's not sing thoughtlessly and use His name that way. Uh, Let us not speak of Him thoughtlessly. That's just as dangerous as it was to use his name in vain in the Old Testament. What about the Sabbath? Say, well, at least that one we know is over. We don't celebrate the Sabbath. Well, as we're going to see in Romans 14, some believers still did, and they were to be accepted along with everybody else. But uh, what does Jesus say about the Sabbath? He says, I am that Sabbath rest. You see, everything the Sabbath pointed to, the rest from work, the rest in God is found in Christ. Christ says, I am that Sabbath rest. You find your rest in me. What does it mean? You lay down all of your labors to try to earn salvation. You lay down everything that tries to to earn a righteousness. He says, I'm going to give you a righteousness. You still honor your father and mother, you're still not to kill or to commit adultery or to um steal in fact jesus says that it's not just killing that you're not allowed to do it's hating you hate a brother in your heart it's like you've killed him it's not just adultery it's not just saying well as long as i say true to my spouse i'm fine it's saying you're not even allowed to commit adultery in your heart in fact the word that that jesus uses to describe lusting after somebody is the word in the in the greek to strongly desire and and it's very interesting in the the context where jesus says that He says that you're not allowed to have a a strong sexual innately selfish desire towards somebody else. And that goes for both, men for women, women for men. But he uses a a word there for, for lust, a word for strong desire. And it's not a word he uses elsewhere in the Bible to talk about normal sexual relations. In fact, the Bible is, uh, is very open about normal sexual relations. The Bible celebrates sex. The Bible is very clear about sex. The Bible, frankly, is so vivid about sex that if we really read it clearly and understood it truly, some of us would be sort of embarrassed by it. And I could take you to some passages right now, but I'll embarrass you some other time. So vivid, so graphic, and it's celebrated. What, what, what Jesus does when he, he, when he brings this up, he says, you are not allowed to have some inordinate selfish desire for something that merely objectifies a person and, and uses them. So far from just literal adultery, it's not even being allowed to do that. Jesus goes far deeper with it. Not only do you not steal, but, but you don't even have this desire to see your brother not have something that you wish you had. Uh, you certainly don't commiserate with others against somebody else and bear false witness. And then he said at the end, the coveting, you see inside your heart this natural, innate coveting. In fact, Paul says, I thought I was good in terms of the law, and it was actually the last one. It was, it was commandment number 10. It was the coveting. That's the one that tripped me up. That's the one when I realized just how dark my heart was. I am a pathological coveter. That's what Paul says. So, if we're going to understand how to obey all of these laws, if we're going to obey them fully and completely, and it is done through love, then we're going to have to understand what is Paul explaining to us and how does that fit in with the ultimate government of God through his law in this world? Well, look back at verse 8. He says you don't want to owe man anything and he, he uses that word right after talking about all the people that you owe. Don't you find that interesting? I mean, if you look back at Chapter 13 and verse 7, he just said, look at all the people you owe. If you owe this person this, then pay it, and this person this, then pay it, and what you owe, what you owe, what you owe, what you owe, and by the way, don't owe anybody anything. You see, he's he's getting your attention. He says, you owe all these people these other things, and you're supposed to give it. You're supposed to give your taxes and your tribute and your honor and your respect, but here's the thing. When it comes to really owing people, the real burden of your soul, the real thing you feel indebted to the world to, it should be to love them. You need to be constrained by this love. It needs to be what drives you. And and this word for owing, if you go back in the book of Romans to chapter 1, I believe it's verse 14, he uses it there. Romans chapter 1 and verse 14, Paul says, I am under obligation. I owe these people. Same idea, same word. I am under obligation. I owe the Greeks and the barbarians. I am indebted to them. I owe them. I also owe the wise and the foolish. I owe everybody. And what I owe them is an opportunity to hear the gospel preached. That's his whole message. That's what he owes. And so when he says here in chapter 13 and verse 8, To owe nobody anything except love, that's the driving force in everything that we do. Because if you love one another, you have fulfilled the law. Now we're going to see in a moment how this unfolds for us, but for the meantime, look at verse 9. He then goes on to describe the commandments. When Paul says, these are the commandments, you shall not commit uh, adultery, you uh, shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. Now he goes on to give these here because he is addressing the fact that there are multiple commandments, but he wants to isolate these ones for a reason, the committing adultery and the murder and the stealing and the coveting. This was in the second section of commandments, not the ones primarily aimed towards God, but the ones primarily aimed towards your fellow man. And so he has here this list of the last six commandments, all of them aimed at your fellow man. And when he says if there is any other commandment, it's not because he's forgotten what the other commandments were. He's trying to say in generality, all of these commandments related to your fellow man. And furthermore, let's talk about how they're summed up. He says you can sum them up in this, and this is how they described it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from two summaries in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy and also in Leviticus, where the authors summarize the law by saying, love the Lord your God, and then summarize the law by saying, love your neighbor. And so if you take those two together, it's a lot easier to remember those than all the laws that were written in the book of Moses. In fact, most of the law as it was given to the people relates to how they love one another. We all know… Exodus 20, that's where the Ten Commandments were given, but then 21, 22, 23, 24, it's all the laws of how you function together in a society in a loving way, in a way where you take other people's assets and you treat them as if they were your own. You look after them. I mean, it gets very specific. It goes right down to see if your, anim- if your uh, neighbor's animal falls into a ditch and you walk by, you're supposed to pull it out. You're supposed to help. You're supposed to treat it as if it was your own. And so this is what's weighing on Paul as he tries to explain to the believers there in Rome what it means to truly function under the government of God. You are to love God and love your neighbor. And then in verse 10 it said, love does no wrong to a neighbor and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So if you want to know how all the law is fulfilled, how to live perfectly under the righteousness of Christ, How to obey God's commandments from start to finish, it is to love. And now that's the simple instruction which on the surface might seem easy enough to understand, right? I can let you out early today. I can just say, well, then great. Go love. Go love. Just go love and everything will be fine. Love, love, love. Love and you'll fulfill all the commandments. Because after all, that's just one thing you can do, right? It's a work. You just have to write that in your notebook and say, love more. And if I work hard and I love more, the more I love, the more obedient I am, the more righteous I'm going to be in God's sight. And you're going to go out from here and determine to love. Well, before you do that, I want to give you an illustration. It comes from the section that was read to you earlier. A lawyer came up to Jesus, as recorded for us in Luke chapter 10. And, and that lawyer was an expert in the law. He was a religious lawyer, he was an Old Testament lawyer. He wasn't a priest, he wasn't a Levite, he wasn't a Pharisee, he wasn't a pastor, he was one of the law experts. And this law expert goes up to Jesus, and he wants to trap Jesus. And so, he asks him a question about inheriting eternal life. And Jesus responds by saying, well, what do you say that the law says? How do you read it is what it looks like in your English translation. You could literally say, how do you recite it? Well, what's the little saying that you use to describe what it means for you to obey God, for, for you to earn eternal life? And he says, easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, well, then good. You got the answer. Go do it. Go love God and go love your neighbor and you'll have eternal life. Is that true? Jesus knew what was going on, because this man did it in order to justify himself. He wants to say in front of everybody, look, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. I'm going to prove to you that this teacher doesn't understand, because this teacher, this Jesus, has been known for assembling around himself a really unsavory group of people who were following him as if he is the savior. And clearly, given the people he's hanging out with, all these tax collectors and prostitutes and wicked people that he's reaching out to, he obviously doesn't care about God's law. And so the lawyer comes up and he tries to entrap him, and Jesus gives him the answer he wasn't expecting. He responds with a question. And now the trap is turned on the lawyer. And so the lawyer's got to get out of it. And to justify himself, he says, okay, all right, you win that point. Obey God, love your neighbor. So he says, how about this, Jesus? Who's my neighbor? Now I find it ironic that he sort of assumes he can love God perfectly, and so now it's just the neighbor part that he needs help with. Like, love, love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah, that's no problem. The neighbor part, though, let's, let's be clear. Give me some application. Give me something specific. Don't, don't, let, me, let me go away from here with a clear understanding of what it means to love my neighbor, because then I'll go and do that, and then I'll know that I am justified. What's the minimum effective dose of righteousness with respect to my neighbor? Lay it out for me. And Jesus responds by telling him a parable. A parable is a made up story that is meant to get a point across to those who could hear and understand it. And he says this there was a man who had been attacked by robbers, he had been stripped of his clothing, beaten to within inches of his life, robbed of everything that he owns, and he's lying there in the road and he's dying. And on the sixteen-mile journey between Jerusalem and Jericho, there were two very religious people that came along, and one of them was a priest, the other was a Levite. Both of whom were in the ministry. Both of whom were set apart by God to do the work of the ministry, and one of the works of the ministry back then was to look after people who were poor, look after those who were in need. You, You were distributing the alms to people, and he says, these both walk along and they see that person, one of their own, a Jewish guy out there on the side of the road, dying. And they quickly go on the other side as if what, they didn't see him? The reality is they did see him and they saw him and what they calculated was if this guy is still alive, then those robbers probably aren't very far away. And the last thing I wanna do is get involved with a guy who has already been beaten within inches of his life because I'm next. And so they pass on the other side and they go and then a Samaritan who was on a journey. Samaritans, by the way, did not journey through the land of Israel. Israelites hated the Samaritans, the Samaritans hated the Israelites. You didn't go through each other's land. You took the longest route you could to avoid being anywhere near those people because you hated each other. Just imagine for a moment the most tense racial conflict that you can. What two groups of people hate each other the most? Or maybe in your context it's not racial, maybe it's political. Uh, Maybe it's even theological. What, What two people do you know could never be in the same room together without it dissolving into a conflict? Well, this is that to the infinite degree. And this Samaritan, in a land where he doesn't belong, comes across somebody who he's supposed to hate, and he reaches out with compassion. And what I love about that word is it's the word that is used more than anything else in the Bible to describe Jesus Christ. It is a compassion. A love and he reaches down and, and he not only ministers to that person but he binds up his wounds he puts them on his own animal he takes them in he puts them in an inn he says you need to look after him after I am done caring for him here is some money you keep helping him until he's fine and if he outlives the money then I want you to let me know because I'll come back and I'll pay for it I'll cover whatever his debts are anything that would be charged to him charge it to my account I mean, this is a a, a radical love. This is an extraordinary love. This is a love that is beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. And it's meant to be that way. It's meant to be striking. You're meant to say that's impossible. And if you say to yourself right now that's impossible, you're right. It is impossible. You and I can't love like that. That's the point of the story. So when Jesus says, which of the men showed the kind of love that it means to love your neighbor, this lawyer can't even bring himself to say it. He can't even bring himself to say it's the Samaritan. He just says, the one who showed compassion, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, yes, go do the same. Now, was Jesus really saying to that lawyer, go do the same? You go love that same way. You go love that same way, and that'll be what you need to justify yourself. What he was saying to that lawyer was, Go try and do the same. What I'm showing you in this parable is a love that you could never do out of your own effort. It's a love that has to be given to you. You see, Jesus doesn't give this lawyer, and he doesn't give us a standard that is so high that if we just attain to it, we will receive the righteousness. We will attain the righteousness. He says, instead, you must come and receive that from me as a gift. So, the, the instruction from Romans 13 is very simple. You need to owe people nothing but a compelling love. Uh, the law of God is laid out for us in the commandments, both in detail and in summary. That means both the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And then he says, all you have to do is to, to live like that and love like that, and you will fulfill it all, and so you will be righteous in the eyes of God. The illustration being that of this lawyer who comes and tries to trap Jesus, and Jesus in turn traps him. But it leaves us somewhat helpless, doesn't it? It leaves us in a place where we're not exactly sure what to do next. Because if I can't attain to that kind of righteousness or that kind of love, then how am I ever gonna be justified? I love the way that um, it was put to me in something I read just this morning. I was reading in my my morning uh, devotional reading. And by the way, we all should do some devotional reading. Even pastors need to read their Bible in the morning like everybody else. And one of the guides that I love to use is Table Talk Magazine. This is put up by Ligonier Ministries. It's the ministry of R.C. Sproul. Um, fantastic. I think it's the best devotional that comes out. And uh, it's, it's meaty, you know? It's like dense and rich and wonderful. And I am always learning something from reading this. And I love the way that he describes to us this idea of faith. And as I was reading this this morning, I thought it would be so helpful for us. He says um, that your faith is not something that ultimately saves you. I'm going to clarify that. It's not your faith that saves you. Faith can sometimes be thought of as a work. If I just have enough faith, I'll be saved. What saves you is not your faith. What saves you is the righteousness of Christ imputed to you in which you have faith. And so he says this, thanks be to God, however, faith itself is not our righteousness, but it receives righteousness. When Paul is describing faith and justification in Romans 3 to 4. He never says that faith itself is our righteousness. Faith and righteousness are not identified in the Greek. Rather, faith is counted for righteousness. And he says this, faith acts with the aim of grabbing on to righteousness. If you go back to the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is the Samaritan. Jesus is the one who comes into a place where He didn't belong. Jesus is the one who reaches out to those who are destitute and helpless. Jesus shows compassion to those who would otherwise be His enemy. He is the one who pays the price, not only with money, but with his own life. He isn't just willing to risk his life to rescue us. He is willing to give his life to rescue us. He is the one who reaches down. And it is as if to say that broken Samar- that broken person down on the ground, that broken, self-righteous Jewish person whose own religious people are willing to walk by him, he is the guy who has to, to reach up, as it were, in faith and grab on to the righteousness of Christ, to grab on to the hope, grab on to the one thing that is going to reconcile him to God. It's an awesome thought, especially when you consider that according to Ephesians 2, even that faith is a gift. It's like it's Christ himself who lifts up the hand to grab on to the rescuing righteousness of Christ. He lavishes rescuing righteousness upon us. We can't love because we try hard enough to love and therefore fulfill the law. We love because He gives us the love that is shed abroad in our hearts that shows the world, that in God's eyes the law has been fulfilled, not because of anything we've done, but because of what He's done. He's already fulfilled the law. Beloved, if you're here today and you're burdened with guilt because you just can't seem to obey the law very well every week, you're here again and you're like, I'm here another week and again I keep failing, I know what God says about hatred, but I'm a hater. I know what he says about lust, but I'm lustful. I know what he says about stealing, but I am so jealous, and I wish these people didn't have what they had. I know what he says about lying and deceiving and slander, but I just can't help it. I know what he says about coveting, but I'm a coveting machine. And I'm burdened under the weight of that law, and every week I come here and I just think, oh, Lord, remove this from me. Can I just rescue you from that this morning? When when, when the Father views you, it is the righteousness of Christ who fulfilled the law completely, and that's what He sees. It's called His active righteousness. It's why He lived on this earth for 33 years, completely fulfilling the law. He did everything perfectly that He might impute to you, not just His righteousness that He has because He's God and He's holy, but the righteousness that He also lived in this life because He's a man. So that's righteousness that's given. So the instruction is clear, love, but you love as Christ loves. And the illustration, here's, here's a lawyer, and I love the fact that, uh, that Jesus doesn't say that two other lawyers passed by because He doesn't want to compare them. He says, I'm not comparing you to other lawyers. It doesn't matter what the other lawyers do. I'm comparing you to the most righteous people that there are. I'm, I'm, put, I'm comparing you to the pastors and the teachers. I'm comparing you to the religious leaders. I'm saying even they don't have a righteousness. That's why Jesus said over and over again, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you'll never inherit the kingdom of God. You're never gonna be righteous enough. And if you are burdened by guilt all the time because you just can't be righteous enough in your own eyes, I would implore you to roll that off onto Christ because he says that all of that has been paid for by him. It's all been charged off to his account. So that's the instruction in the illustration. Let me give you an invitation, okay? An invitation to roll the burdens off yourself and on to Christ. The best way for me to explain that is to be both um, objective and subjective. So let me start objectively. I, I love this little book, and I've read it several times. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It's a book written by Thomas Brooks. And I remember when I first came to the area, as a pastor, I I had some young adults that I was gathering with, and I told them we'd get together, and we were going to read through this book. And it didn't really dawn on me that this is kind of like a weighty book, you know? Like, you're starting with some Puritan book with a title like that, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Like, you know, that's a real page-turner. But the reality is, I, I found it super helpful, and I think many of them slogged through it. I'm not sure if they appreciated it when they started, but I'm sure they did when they ended. But what I love about this is that It reminds me that in my in my life uh, I am in a constant battle with Satan that the world the flesh and the devil are constantly trying to make me believe that I could be righteous enough to make myself right with God and that when I fail that I have somehow been diminished in his eyes and I am no longer the child that he says I am that somehow my eternal destiny is at stake and Satan will strategically find ways to make us fall he knows us so well and there are lots of devices, and the more you get to know yourself, the more you get to know how your enemy does the very things that resonate with you. He can speak to you because you and your own person, your own being, you're, you're naturally inclined towards certain sins, and it doesn't take long for Satan to find out what those are, and he can trigger that easily. And so what Thomas Brooks does is he goes, let's analyze these things. And I think what Thomas Brooks did is he probably spent a lot of time thinking about his own life. What are the ways that that Satan seems to successfully get to him? And while many of these would echo in my own heart, I I found this one to be particularly meaningful. And I just will share it with you. A little bit of a confession so you know one of the ways that over the years, you know, Satan has, has compelled me at times. But device number 10, it says this. By working them to be frequent in comparing themselves and their ways with those that are reputed to be or reported to be worse than themselves. This is how God works in certain… Sorry, how Satan works in the lives of certain Christians. He works in them to be frequent in comparing themselves in their ways with those who are reputed or reported to be worse than themselves. Do you ever feel tempted to do that, to compare yourself? Say, well, I might not be righteous, but I'm not as unrighteous as that person. I I might sin, but I don't sin as much as that person. I might be still battling the flesh, but that person doesn't battle the flesh. They just give in to the flesh. At least I'm battling. I mean, I've done all the things that I'm supposed to do growing up. I was the obedient child. I was the one who went through everything that I had to go through in order to be the upstanding citizen that I am today. I work hard. I deserve it. I've earned it. You ever tempted to look at others, look down on them, judge them, despise them? Brooks says, by this device, the devil drew the proud Pharisee to bless himself and curse the condition of the tax collector. Here's the remedy, he says. Number one, the first remedy against this device of Satan is solemnly to consider this, that there is not a greater nor a clearer argument to prove a man a hypocrite than to be quick-sighted abroad and blind at home. There is no better sign of a hypocrite than to clearly see the faults of others out there and not see the faults of yourself up close. Secondly, he says, the second remedy against this device of Satan is to spend more time in comparing of your internal and external actions with the rule, with the word by which you must be judged at last than in comparing of yourself with those that are worse than yourselves. Don't compare yourself with others, compare yourself with the standard of God's Word. And in that, the law will also accomplish its purpose, which is to be a tutor to bring you to Christ, which is to make you realize you cannot do the very things that are being instructed by God in the law, and therefore you need someone who has to do it for you and to give you their righteousness, and you go right back to the gospel. And thirdly, remedy three, the third remedy against this device of Satan is, seriously to consider, that though thy sins be not as great as those of others, yet without sound repentance on thy side and pardoning mercy on God's, thou wilt be as certainly damned as others, though not equally tormented with others. He will be just as equally doomed or damned as anybody else were it not for the righteousness of Christ. as we close, I want to give you three more applications and I'm going to do that through, through a scripture, through a song, and through a short poem. I'm not going to sing though. Look over at Romans chapter 5. This is the scripture that I hope will help anchor this for us this morning. Romans chapter 5. And I'm concerned most, most with verses 12 down through verse 21. Let this scripture anchor you so that you understand what it means to love the way that God loves. To have the righteousness of Christ that allows you to manifest His love so that you are able to fulfill the law, not because of your works, but because of His work in you. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. through Jesus Christ our Lord. Beloved, it is only through His reigning righteousness that you can love your neighbor. It's only through His reigning righteousness that you can love God, and it will always be imperfect, but that's okay because in the final judgment, you will see that it was always His righteousness being considered. The song is this, and I read it to you. It's so profound, and I want to just remind you of it. I, th- I think we might have sung it last week. Allow me to read this to you. May it minister to your soul. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. For, uh, for my life He wholly for my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine, I can sing all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon and he is raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, My sin has been defeated. Jesus, now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. One of the great differences between people who know of the imputed righteousness of Christ and the doctrines of grace and those who still struggle with their own sense of free will and human accomplishment is that one will always struggle for their assurance and the other will always struggle with assurance. I want you to go away from this place assured That if your faith is in Christ, his righteousness has been applied to you. And you can say, yet not I, but Christ through me in loving God and loving my neighbor. That's the scripture and the song. One little short poem and then we conclude. Read this just recently in a book. It's given to me by Andrew. Gospel sonnets, beautiful book. And in it, the author says this, and I just want to give you these four lines. And I really think it just captures the essence of both law and grace so beautifully together. He writes, "'When by the law to grace I'm schooled, grace by the law will have me ruled. Hence, if I don't the law obey, I cannot keep the gospel way. He says that the law brought me to a knowledge of grace, and grace taught me that I fulfill the law in Christ. And therefore, it is not a burden for me to obey, but a joy for me to follow in obedience my Savior, and a joy to obey Him, not out of a burden, but out of a heart filled with gratitude. May that be your heart this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this joyous occasion to be able to celebrate the truth of the gospel as laid out for us here in this text. The standard is impossible. Obeying the law? We can't. And yet it's a glorious thought that we don't need to, not the way that some people think they do. That it will be fulfilled instead by you and through you, that by your Spirit you will allow us to manifest the fruit that comes from a desire to obey you out of gratitude, not out of a burden to earn your favor, that any judgment that we are going to receive should not be feared by us, because the only righteousness that will ever be evaluated is that of your Son. I pray, Lord, that if this is a doctrine that has yet to be embraced by anybody here today, if, they are, if they're still struggling with earning, if they're still comparing themselves, if they still think that it's their free will that is going to save them, if they still think that you are not able to send your son to die for the elect and to once and for all secure them for eternity, that if they doubt your love and your persevering grace, that you would lift the burden off their shoulders today and they would leave this place rejoicing, that they would engage right now in song in a way they never have before because the burden has been lifted and their eyes are on Christ, the author and finisher of the faith that secures their righteousness. Oh, we thank you for this doctrine, And may it be something that is our shield and our defender throughout life. And until we are presented before you one day in glory with great joy. And all God's people said, amen.